Tonight, soldiers, athletes, and farmers, probably easily the most unusual title we've ever had on a Tuesday night. I promise that this will make some kind of sense before we are finished. I'm borrowing a trilogy of metaphors used by the Apostle Paul. In one of his letters, he uses these back to back to back as a way of describing the Christian experience. And so I want to take up with Paul's little argument. What we're doing, of course, I like to review this for 10 seconds every week as we're studying the hapax. Hapax, um, legomenon, Greek for heard once. These are words that appear one time in the Greek New Testament. They don't appear again in the Bible. They may appear somewhere else, and sometimes they don't appear anywhere else in any literature at all. We've had some of those. We've had We've had words that appear once in a gospel and another time in another gospel. I counted those because they were the same story. We've had words that appear only in that author. Um, we've had words that appear and then their, their transverse word appears in the same book. We did that last week in Colossians. And so I've tried to stretch a little bit and, and do some different things with this, but every week it's just a vehicle to say something else, it's not, I'm not trying to make a spiritual destination out of identifying single words in the Greek. That's not going to save any souls and bring peace to your heart because you found a Greek word that doesn't appear anywhere else. But it does give us a chance to talk about some other things, and, so, and I find them interesting. And so if you can do two things at the same time, do something interesting that is, has some value, well, that seems to be better than doing something with value that's boring. Uh, and so that's what this series has been, and that allows us to do a bunch of stuff. Um, tonight, we actually feature uh, a word, um, but we'll, we'll, we're going to use two. I'm really only going to talk about one of them, um, but we're going to use a word that, and I'll just tell you this up front, this word really doesn't have a whole lot to do with soldiers, athletes, and farmers. Um, it's a word that's inside of that little trilogy. I needed a word because I really wanted to talk about this really wanted to focus on soldiers for a little bit because there's some things in it that I, I needed to un, I needed to let go of in my ministry and in the way I thought about the Bible. And so part of the, tonight's lesson is just um, because I have come from one point to another point in my own journey. And I like to share that. I like to share that with the audience. I like to share that with you. Let's start in a way that we haven't started this entire time. We usually just read the text and then I made you guess or I go, one of these words. Instead, here's the word. Pragmatia. It's translated one time in the New Testament as the word affairs. And when you see here affairs, that seems illicit. But it's not so in this context. It's from another hapax. Pragmatomai, don't worry about that. We're going to show you that to you in a moment, but I just wanted to show you that you can have a hapax that actually has the same root. Then it uses the word in two different ways. I'll show you both of those ways tonight. Pragmatomai is translated occupy or to carry on a business. But really, I wanted to show you this. These, these Greek words lead to the English word. So when you talk about etymology, where does the word come from? Where did we get it? Why did we get it? The English word pragmatic has as its root pragmatia and pragteomai. And pragmatic is to be realistic or to be sensible as opposed to being theoretical. So if someone's pragmatic, we would call them a realist. They're not, they're not an idealist. They're trying to be real in the situation. And in, in 
scripture, we might say it's somewhat, well, it's not a word that's used in scripture, but as it regards the Bible or as it regards uh, spirituality, it might be someone who was guided by the practical over the ideal, so over the theoretical. Um, most people try to consider themselves a pragmatist. Very few people don't if once they know what it means. Well, I'm a pragmatist. In other words, you know, I want, I want what's, uh, what's real. I, 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 don't, I don't need pie in the sky. Give me what's real. Although fewer of us are pragmatists than we might assume. Um, but what's the word matter? Um, let's start with the second one there, pragmatomai. I just, I just want to show you this in the Gospels and then we'll work our way to pragmatia. Jesus uses it one time. Well, Luke uses it one time in the Jesus story. You remember the parable of the talents? <clears throat> in Luke 19.13, he called 10 of his servants and he delivered to them 10 minas, parable of the talents, parable of the minas. And he said to them, do business till I come. I think the King James says, occupy till I come. Okay, a word that is do business or continue to carry out your work. When the word gets used by Paul, it's pragmatia, a different form of the same word. And pragmatia, affairs, or to carry out your business, to, to, to live your life. The way Paul uses it lets us know a little bit about why Paul uses it. I want to read, as we always do, the context. The words in there, we'll read the verses in front and the verses behind. Tonight's Hapax comes from 2 Timothy 2. Beginning in verse 1, top of the chapter, you therefore my son, my son of course is Timothy. This is Paul writing to Timothy, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You don't know yet how much you need that verse, but you do. That'll be where we close tonight. The grace that is in Christ Jesus. Because everything we're about to talk about, tip my hand, everything we're about to talk about, you're going to need the grace of God to do. And so to quote the, the following verses without that one is to do a disservice. And man, have we had disservices done to us with Scripture. And people pull Scriptures and throw it out there and say, here's what you ought to be. And they sometimes don't give you the lead-in, the, the recognition that in order to do this, you need the grace that's in Christ Jesus. This is why you can't even preach the oughts without grace. You can't preach the you need tos without grace. You can't preach you shoulds without grace. All of those things need preach, but they need grace in front of them. And so start there, strong in the grace. The things that you've heard from me, among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Verse 3. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life. Affairs, pragmatia. There's our hapax. Third line, third word. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life or the business of this life. Word never appears again. So that... That makes the bells go off. Paul's chosen a word he doesn't use anywhere else. So maybe he's trying to say something he hasn't said anywhere else. Or at least he's trying to say it in a way he hasn't said it before. So that sets us up for what was our, our title tonight. You can see we're with soldiers right here, right? Verse 3 and verse 4. So you can please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Verse 5. If anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. There's our athlete. And the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. There's our farmer. So Paul is just giving you 
Three metaphors in a row, what's he trying to do? It's not obvious up front. We're going to dig into that in a little bit too because Paul knows it's not obvious. Uh, he will even say as much in just a moment. Um, let me deal with my history with this for a little bit before, we, before I dig into. Here, here's why this one came out this week. For early part of my ministry, for a lot of years actually, um, ministry was about preaching the gospel. Preaching the gospel was essentially trying to get people saved. When you turned to preach to Christians, it had less grace, more fire. Preaching to Christians was where we preached uh, hard. That's what I would have called it that. You preach hard. And preaching hard simply meant that you gave people... Now I look back and I always jokingly say that you punched people in the face, you gave people a bloody lip. I never thought of it that way then, but essentially what you were trying to do was make people... I'm just, I'll go ahead and say You're trying to make people feel bad. You, were, you essentially spent a lot of your sermon trying to make Christians feel bad enough to come to the altar because you didn't have any sinners in the house. And preaching the gospel to sinners was to get sinners saved. You didn't have any sinners in the house, so you had to preach the gospel enough to either motivate people to come like to praise the Lord or to give Him glory, but you were essentially pulling scriptures in the New Testament or in the Old, sometimes in the Old without any New Testament, did that a lot, to try and preach principles and morality and code. And, and so you're really just trying to get people, and, and, I, and when the heart was in the right place. You usually want people to live right. You want people to do right because we have this idea that that's what being a Christian is, is doing the right thing, knowing the right information. And so preaching, you had to get clever. And so it wasn't just about expository preaching where you took a verse and worked it or you took a verse and cross-referenced it with another one. You had to get clever. So you had clever titles. Um, you had clever concepts. And you could use a scripture from the Bible and then borrow all kinds of info from the world. Well, one that made a huge impression on me as a young man, and then I preached the fire out of it, was 2 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul told us to be good soldiers. Because you could take the soldier motif and do all kinds of stuff with it. They had weapons and they killed and they had to, you know, sleep in tents and they had to be away from home. There was all kinds of stuff you could do and you had tons of TV shows and movies to pull illustrations from and history. And people love it. They love war stories and hearing about generals and mistakes they made on the battlefield and how they could have been better if they had known this and how you get to know that because you have the Holy Spirit who'll tell you where the enemy's stationed. And um, I I, it's funny that this was already going to be tonight. And we're moving. And so I'm going through stuff. And I've moved now across the country and across the country. <laughs> you, you end up putting junk in a box. And then you just think, I'm just going to get it there. You know, and you got this big plan. When I get it there, you know, amazing things are going to happen and from this box. And then you open it and realize, oh, I packed that one 10 years ago and took it to that house and then took it to this house. And I, you know what? Am I going to take it to another? So I pull out just, just stuff just coming out of this box. I found an old Bible. It was so old. 
and had been so crushed under the weight of moving trucks for years that it's just dented, just this mass of leather and pages. And so I thought, I didn't even remember this Bible. And so I thought, whose Bible is this? Well, it was mine. It was, it was late 90s Paul Bible. And it was just full of preaching notes. And I didn't like most of it. And I thought, why am I packing this all across the country? But funny enough, knowing what I was going to teach tonight, there it was at the bottom of a page, a whole set of notes on the soldiering messages that I would preach. And, the, and so I went through the points line by line, and it was like reading someone else's writing. It's not yours anymore. It's not your own voice. But I could remember him. I could remember these points and feeling so good about them. And I had all these little stories about these secular generals on the battlefield and the things they did wrong and how they could have done this and, and that. But as I read it, I went back. And again, I already knew what I was teaching tonight. And so I know I got to attribute it to the Father, who of all the stuff I could have found and of all the places it could have fell open to, did that. And all of it kind of come flooding back to me, come rushing back to me. And there was always this need to do more, to be more aggressive, to be more dominant, to be a conqueror. And that leaked over into the whole persona about Christianity is to win. And this whole thing's a fight every day. And if you're not fighting, you're losing. And how do you fight? And so there'd be whole lists of what the soldier had to do to train himself and how he had to be good and how he had to aim and how he had to clean his weapon and how he had all the stuff that was just a press. Even as I read it, it was like a press again on my soul and my spirit. And so then I had to sit down with Paul, knowing that I'd already been drawn back to this, not even completely sure why, to say, what is Paul telling us that a soldier is supposed to do? You can already tell I'm going to spend way more on soldiers than athletes and farmers. I think they're a follow-up. There's a good point to be made about them, and I'll make it, but it's really about the soldiering. So start here, okay? Paul's soldier metaphor should be understood within his context, that of the Roman Empire. Do not assume that his soldier metaphor is Civil War, Revolutionary, World War II, Vietnam soldiers, American troops overseas. Do not put into Paul what he could not have possibly known. What he does know is a soldier in the Roman Empire, a soldier was less of a warrior and more of a peacekeeper. I don't mean they didn't go to war. I mean they were stationed on the fringes of the Roman Empire, on the far edges of the empire. That's where the Roman legions stayed. It was on the edges of the empire to secure the borders, to guard against attack. They lived far from home for long stretches of time and they endured enormous hardship and affliction. Paul has this in mind throughout his letter. Let me show you how we know. 2 Timothy 2.3, endure hardship as a soldier. 2 Timothy 2.9, I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. 2 Timothy 4.5, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Look at all of them together, that next one. Endure hard times, 
suffer trouble, endure afflictions. These are not fighting terms. These are not violence terms. They're tribulation terms. They're suffering terms. Paul's telling us to be a good soldier in the way that we endure what's done to us. To be a good soldier in that we don't expect life to be easy. To be a good soldier is to sacrifice the part of us that doesn't want conflict and that doesn't want problem. And to be a good soldier is to understand that there is a price to be paid in following Jesus. Being a good soldier is not learning how to slit throats. Being a good soldier is not learning how to aim properly. And when we put the context of what we think into the story, we end up with a different version of Christianity than Paul's laying out to Timothy. His soldier speech does contain the phrase warfare. We're going to reread it again. But Paul emphatically throughout the letter is making an emphasis that this isn't easy. It hurts. Sometimes we're afflicted and we endure stuff, but we do it as good soldiers. Soldiers who are stationed far from their homeland in a strange land. Our home is not this earth. It's somewhere else. And we're surrounded by people that don't understand our language. And that don't, that's the soldier of Paul's day. Surrounded by strangers and vagabonds and barbarians that don't understand who we are. That don't understand what we're doing here. But we listen to the instructions of our king. And we follow orders. And we are in this place knowing that we'll endure bad weather and we'll endure famine and we'll endure, endure problems and that it's just part of what we signed up for. This is the anti-everything's-going-to-be-all-right message because not everything's always going to be all right. And it's just a lie. If you tell people everything's going to be all right in Jesus' name, you just attach Jesus' name to the impossible. Everything is not going to be all right. Sometimes really bad things happen. And sometimes really bad things happen to you. And you got to put up with them. Or you quit. Or they kill you. And that's Paul's challenge. is to say, Timothy, you're a young pastor. And it's not going to be easy. Treat it like you're a soldier who's far away from Rome. On the fringes of the empire. Who's longing to go home. But who knows he has a job to do. And then you can put up with the snow. And the lack of food. And the lack of water. And the wind. And when you're tired. And you'll be able to survive. Because you know you have something else. And if that's the message we could give to people. It would be this world is not your home. You're listening to the voice of your, your master. You're listening to the one who's employed you. Who, who pays you with his goodness and his grace. Not because you do because of who you are and you are out here and it's going to cost you and sometimes things aren't going to go your way and it's going to get hard and i'm not going to promise you that it's going to be easy and sometimes you're going to want to quit and treat quitting as if it's not an option treat it as if there's no way you can go anywhere else that you're here because it's who you are because you made a choice to follow jesus that's the choice you made that's the choice you made the choice to follow Jesus to the fringes of the earth, to the edges of the earth. And wherever he leads me, I will follow. So I endure it because it's part of what I do. I know we love, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's the favorite verse of saint and sinner alike in America. Philippians 4.13. It's, it's tattooed on arms and backs and bump, it's on bumper stickers and it's stenciled onto walls. And it's, it's the verse. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. And what people 
why people gravitate to it, I think, is because we are essentially in a very self-centric culture where it's all about you're beautiful, you're strong, you're powerful. That's the message we send. You're beautiful, you're strong, you're powerful. You can do anything, even if you're not beautiful, strong, powerful, and you can't do anything. We still tell people, you're beautiful, you're strong, you're powerful, you can do anything. And for those of you that don't think you can, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And we just blanket that over every single possible thing we could ever do. And we quote it like a mantra. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And I don't think we're doing people any favors, once again, when we take scriptures out of their context. Because Paul for sure in Philippians 4.13, is not saying, if you dream it, you can achieve it. Like whatever you come up with, Jesus will help you pull it off. No, it's actually much scarier than that. Philippians 4.11, 12 and 13, put them together. Not that I speak in regard to need because I've learned that whatever state I am, I'm just going to be content. I know how to be made fun of, cut down, destroyed, persecuted, put under, beat up, abased. I know, I know how to take that. Oh, and I also know how to make it. You know, sometimes I get beat up. Sometimes I lose. Sometimes I don't win the argument. Sometimes I don't win the day. And I've learned that I better be content with that because you don't get to win every day. And, and you don't always end up on top just because you know Jesus. And if anyone knew Jesus, the author to the Philippians knew Jesus. And so, because I... I know that if I am abased and if I abound, I'm content everywhere. And in all things, I've learned to be full. I've learned to be hungry. I've learned to abound. And I've learned to suffer need. And you know what? I can do it. Because in that, Christ strengthens me. All of these things, Christ gives me the strength. Whether it's a good day or a bad day. Whether I'm full or whether I'm empty. Sometimes, in living for Christ, things won't go my way. Sometimes I won't have prosperity. Sometimes I won't have anything. And Paul goes, I've learned not only to be content, which is a tough one. It's tough because it's easier to say you're content than to be content. Because we all lie about being content. I'm cool with this. And we're not cool with it at all. We go to God immediately, five minutes later, and we whine that it's not the way it used to be. But instead... The whining's okay. We, 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 that's what we do. That's what kids do. We're, we're the children of God. We whine. But I can do it. Not because I'm smart, beautiful, intelligent, and special. But because of Christ. Now why because of Christ? Because I'm a disciple, and disciples follow the leader. I watch him do it, and then I do it. He picks up his cross. I pick up my cross. Cross mode of execution. You don't pick up a cross because it looks cool. In the Roman world, you pick up a cross to die. Jesus goes, okay, you're going to follow me. Well, then you got to pick up your, whatever I pick up, you got to pick up. And so we're stepping into this voluntarily. And so we are soldiers. Now, the reason this has meant so much to me is because for so long it, it meant something else. But to watch Paul, who isn't calling me into learning how to shoot and kill, and learning how to wage a war, but is rather calling me into the endurance that a soldier must have. And I know that's what he's doing because of the trilogy. Soldiers, athletes, farmers. He picks others who must endure. 
Athletes who must endure adversity in order to get through the game. It's not always going to be easy, but you're going to have to make it. Farmers who must endure all kinds of famine and weather and wind and insects in order to get to a crop that they get to enjoy, but nothing happens easily and nothing happens overnight. And so no more than we assume the athlete or the farmer is a weapon of destruction do we have to assume that Paul's soldier metaphor is either, but rather someone who knows how to endure. Let me borrow a couple other scholars, if I could. Um, guys who far smarter than I am and say things far better than I can. David Bentley Hart, probably for my money, the finest Greek voice in the world right now, um, has a translation of the Bible. I highly recommend the viewers, to the listeners, and to all of you, if you haven't picked up David Bentley Hart's copy of the New Testament, it's essentially his life's work of translating Greek into the, what has to be the most incredible rendering into the English. I'm not talking poetically. I'm going to read you a poetic one as well. We got, I got David Bentley Hart and I got Eugene Peterson. You want Greek and you want poetry. You get these two guys back to back. So um, listen to David Bentley Hart's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 to 6. Be a fellow sufferer of evil. Look at that. Be a fellow sufferer of evil like a good soldier of the anointing one Jesus. That is not what we think when we think be a good soldier. We think be a good soldier is be a good killer. But Paul's Greek says be a good soldier in that you know how to suffer tough times. That's what soldiers do. They know that things aren't going to be easy. Be a fellow sufferer of evil like a good soldier of the anointed one. One who serves as a soldier is disentangled from life's affairs. There's our hapax. Disentangled. Just doesn't let it wrap him up. You know, like we, we, we say like a colloquialism is he's all wrapped up. He's all wrapped up in that right now. What do we mean? We, we mean he's tangled up in it. It's, it's consuming his life. It's choking him out. One who serves as a soldier is disentangled from life's affairs so that he might execute what the one who enlisted him in the army pleases. And if indeed a man competes as an athlete, he does not receive the crown unless he competes lawfully. The husbandman who labors should be first to partake of the fruits. Trilogy. Soldier, athlete, farmer. All right, let's borrow Eugene Peterson. You want poetry? Eugene's your man. And I'm also going to add a verse because I haven't read for you the seventh verse yet. We're going to let Eugene Peterson give you the seventh verse because he says it so well right at the end. When the going gets rough, take it on the chin with the rest of us, the way Jesus did. A soldier on duty doesn't get caught up in making deals at the marketplace. There's a good way to say pragmatia. He doesn't get caught up in making deals at the marketplace. He concentrates on carrying out orders. An athlete who refuses to play by the rules will never get anywhere. It's the diligent farmer who gets the produce. And you're going, what in the world these three things got to do with each other? Think it over. God will make it all plain. And Paul says something to that effect when he says in verse 7, Consider what I say and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. So essentially, look, I know it's Paul. I think it's Paul kind of going, yeah, I know I jammed three in there. It don't make a lot of sense together. I got a soldier, got an athlete, got a farmer. Uh, you just think it over. Let God explain it to you. So landing is, is maybe 
the prerogative of each person. If we're all supposed to think it over and let the Lord explain to us, then maybe I'm, I'm on a fool's errand up here trying to go, this is what it means. Because I don't teach that way anyway. I go, this is what it means. It doesn't mean anything else. But I do share with you what it means to me in the journey, in that moment, in that season. And it's also why I try to stay fresh instead of recycle. So if I go back over the same material, I'm less, I might go listen to what I did before, but I really like to say, what would I say now? And maybe I can say some things I said then. So I don't want to, I don't want to land on it for you, but this is where I ended up with this today. This was my thoughts on it. We're like soldiers. We're like athletes and we're like farmers, but not in the way that these things can often be twisted because we're not soldiers as it relates to killing or conquering. We're soldiers in that we endure the worst possible things. We're not athletes as it relates to winning. It's not about winning. We're athletes as it relates to not cheating and to playing fair. We're not farmers as it relates to financial success but rather we're farmers as it relates to our responsibility for producing a quality product. So I, I would distill it to this. We endure, we participate, we produce, but we don't do it in the same way as those entangled in the pragmatia. Otherwise, other, otherwise known as we don't do it in the same way that others do in the business of life where all is fair in love and war, right? So get ahead however you got to get ahead. So this is the way I see it. Paul is showing us that we are involved. But we have to consider that we have a different rule book. And that it's important that we learn it. Because if we don't learn it, if we don't treat it like a good soldier, pay attention to your instructions. Like a good athlete, play fair. Don't cheat your neighbor. Like the farmer who produces something worth eating, that he would eat. He produces something quality that he would partake in. Um, maybe that's the closest it gets to looking like a disciple. But remember how I told you we would end. 2 Timothy 2.1. This is how this all started. You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Why is Paul open with this? Because I'm about to ask a lot of you. I'm about to tell you that this is all, not always going to be easy and that you need to be good soldiers. You need to be athletes that play fair in a world where all the athletes cheat. And you need to be a farmer who's willing to eat his own goods, eat his own produce. He works hard enough to produce something he wouldn't be afraid to put on his own table. It's not just about producing and selling and getting and gaining. It's about quality. It's about being responsible for what you do. It's about living a life in which you listen to the instructions of your leader. You pay attention to your father. You take care of your neighbor. And you're responsible for those around you. And it's going to take grace to do that. Because the affairs of this life are going to grab you. They're going to tangle you up. And they're going to make it very difficult for you to play in this without trying to play by its rules. And if you've lived 10 minutes as a follower of Christ in a world that's not a follower of Christ, you know what Paul's talking about. And so you've either given up and went, well, who cares? And you just do whatever you want to. Or you found that there's a challenge living for Christ sometimes. And that's okay. So don't, don't dare slide into this idea that, well, if it's challenging, it's not grace. If it's hard, it's not grace. Mm, careful. It ain't ever easy picking up a cross and carrying it up a hill knowing you're going to die. 
That ain't supposed to be easy. That ain't supposed to be fast. And it sure ain't supposed to be fun. <laughs> Which doesn't mean that following Christ isn't beautiful and wonderful and full of life. Absolutely. But being a disciple has its soldier-like moments. It has its athlete-like moments. It has its farmer-like moments. It requires patience. It requires understanding the rules of the game and knowing how to play them without breaking them and knowing how not to cheat. And it, and it requires the endurance of the good soldier. And it, but all of that can't be done on our own. We need the grace of God to do it. It reminds me of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and his cost of discipleship compared the difference between cheap grace and costly grace. And Bonhoeffer took a lot of grief for that over the years. He's not here to defend himself because he lost his life at the hands of the Nazis. He was martyred in a world where we don't think a lot of martyrs. Um, he was martyred at the hands of a regime, the Reich, that he stood so firmly against in the face of an overwhelming majority of his Christian brothers and sisters who followed that Reich because they became convinced that they were in the right. Bonhoeffer was a voice in that world, in a difficult world, who stood up and told his fellow believers, it's cheap grace to think that you can follow Jesus without... This was his... It's cheap grace to think you can follow, be a Christian without picking up the cross. Because that's cheap grace. To think that all you got to do is say you're one. And then that it doesn't matter who you align yourself with. It doesn't really matter how you play the game. How many rules you break. How many hearts you crush. How many lives you score. It doesn't matter because you got grace. And Bonhoeffer goes, it can't be that way if we're also following Christ. He goes, it's got to be something else. And Bonhoeffer called it costly grace. And the grace movement made fun of, two generations later, made fun of that statement because they went, well, grace can't cost. It's an oxymoron. Grace can't. Yes, you're right. Grace can't cost, but that doesn't mean it's not costly. You understand the difference? It doesn't cost you anything, but it doesn't mean it came cheap. It doesn't mean it means nothing. It, it, it still means something. Bonhoeffer, cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. We're fighting today for costly grace. He went on to say cheap grace is what we give ourselves. It's grace without discipleship. It's grace without the cross. That's grace without taking up a cross. So when Paul tells Timothy, you're going to need to stay strong in the grace that's been given to you by Christ... Be a good soldier, endure hardness, be a good athlete who understands the parameters of the game, be a good farmer that would eat his own produce, be patient in the midst of this. There's a thousand ways we can go with these illustrations, but don't make them evil. Don't make them condemning. Don't make them harsh in the way that they become violent and competitive and lording it over because then they lose the spirit of the one we're following. And you might say, this is tough, I can't do it. Great, then you need grace. Congratulations, you need verse one. If you're gonna live verse three, four, five, and six, you need to know that it's only the grace of God through Christ Jesus. So how are we gonna do this? We gotta keep watching Jesus. We gotta keep paying attention to Jesus. We gotta keep following Jesus. We gotta be listening for Jesus. Because in that, we find the grace to do what Jesus did, and he invites us in. And we know we're gonna fail. And and it isn't that we take sin lightly in grace. It's that, we, it's that we don't place the impetus of salvation on people stop sinning, but rather on the finished work of Christ and His grace. And so 
Don't fall into the trap of magnifying one sin over the other and saying this one is the really bad one. Because, I mean, we could stand up here tonight and list off four or five things everybody'd agree on, and it'd make some people watching feel really good. You know, well, I'm glad he called that out. Because that's kind of what people wait on. You know, call that out. Do you think that's a sin, yes or no? We live in that kind of world right now, black and white. Do you think that's a sin, yes or no? <laughs> And yeah, okay. What's that mean though? Well, what's that, what's that mean? What's that mean in, the, in, in light of the fact that he's not holding their transgressions against them? What's that mean in the light that, that Jesus has been judged, has judged the sin of the world and took it into himself? So what's that mean then? So that's a sin, but what does that mean? What are we going to do with the grace of God in light of that? Because if we want to play here a sin, there a sin, everywhere a sin, sin, I can throw one out, two out, three out that you probably slide off into and brag your way into it. You know, like, are you greedy? Like nobody's ever greedy. Like no one ever sees that in themselves. You know what I mean? Like people don't go, you know what, I've just figured out I'm greedy. How much is too much? Like you got enough? How much is too much? How much is enough? You need more? Where does it become greed? I don't know. Aren't you glad? That I don't get to be the arbiter of it? <laughs> or aren't you glad that maybe there's not this little light that goes off when you crossed over into the greed zone? And now, ding, 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 you got more than you need. Uh-oh. Well, now what are you going to do with it? It becomes really easy to tell everybody else what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to live their lives. And we all end up being that holy roller at the feet of Jesus when the woman comes in and smashes the perfume, pours it on Jesus, and we go, man, what a waste. You could have sold that and gave it to the poor. That sounds like something that I heard this weekend after Super Bowl commercials. That was a waste. If they really wanted to do something for God, they'd have gave all that money and to a homeless kitchen. Just be careful that you're not that one who sits at the feet of Jesus and spots what everybody else is doing wrong with their worship or their money or their praise. It's the same thing of looking at everybody and figuring out what they're all doing wrong with their lives. It's the same concept. And we need the grace of God in this if we're going to make it. Soldiers, athletes, farmers, you are those things. They're just metaphors for how you live your life. I'm not trying to get you to aspire, but through the grace of God, consider them. This is a good one to wrestle with and think about what might that have looked like in Paul's day. And for athletes in Paul's day, it's not like there was pro sports and you know 17 different versions of every sport paul talks athletes this is not that there weren't athletes but you know the games was pretty much what he's talking about there's track there's wrestling but in all of his situations this is kind of dovetails off of last week's brabeo his umpire it's it, there's it, it's it's ruled by an arbiter so pay attention to the arbiter and the farming metaphors are rich in the Gospels and in the epistles because it was an agrarian society. It's a society that's kind of lost on us. We don't truly understand. But there's an, there's an element of patience. There's an element of getting your hands in the soil. There's, there's all kinds of beautiful things, imagery that you can bring into it. Um, let's see it through the lens of God's grace. Let's pray. Father, I, I'm thankful for this word tonight. I, I want to thank you, Father. And I want to thank you openly for having me have a little brief encounter with the old version of me this week and in the most unbelievable what the world would probably say was coincidence um, 
I don't really think so. So I, I thank you for the encounter in a way that allowed me to go back for just a second into the feeling that I had and then to experience what your grace does to that. And for this fresh insight, this fresh revelation that you give us tonight on Paul's little trilogy of soldiers and athletes and farmers and the encouragement not to be so entangled in the way the world does it that we lose the beauty of this metaphor. And so we, I feel like this is one that we, we probably really, Father, we need to take that seventh verse more serious. I do. That, that verse that tells us that we're just going to have to, we're going to have to set with this. <laughs> we're going to have to think it over and that you're going to make it plain. That's what I ask you to do. In Jesus' name, amen.